Welcome to season two of For the Love of Jewelers, a podcast connecting people engaged in the craft and industry of jewelry making. Brought to you by Rio Grande Jewelry Supplies and hosted by yours truly, Courtney Gray. While navigating through this time, we realize the need to stay home, be safe, and stay inspired. We are truly all in this together. I'm honored and excited to take you on this journey to discover not only the how, but why we make jewelry. My goal is not only to inform you, but to empower you by sharing the passion, perspective, and perseverance of your fellow makers and professionals in all facets of the craft. Let's dive in. Residing in the hills of Nevada City in the heart of California's gold country, Sarah Williamson is enamored with a wide variety of aesthetics, ranging from vintage or minimalist designs to more detailed futuristic styles. While her body of work is expansive in scope, she has recently focused on non-traditional bridal jewelry. Her practice emphasizes the use of artisan-cut, rare-colored gemstones and American-mined gemstones, both of which can be found in her soon-to-launch jewelry brand, Precious Ghost. Hey guys, we're here with Sarah Williamson in Nevada City in California, so welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to talk to you again. It's been many years since I've been to your school. I know. What was that? Five years? Four years? I mean, I would have guessed two, but you're probably right. (laughs) We start losing track of time. I think the older that we get, but (laughs) I used to be able to nail it. It's like, that was six months ago. No, not anymore. I could keep track of time with uh, the projects that I was working on at the time. If I could see those, then I have a better idea of how long ago it was. There's kind of a timeline for you is my work was here at this stage. And uh, that's smart. That's very cool. Yeah, and you got to ch- to study with Thomas Daling, who's a huge award-winning um, brother duo of Jim Daling, and uh, they're both fabulous guys. That was such a fun week to have you in, in Austin. Yeah. Uh, well, tell me a little bit. I wanna I wanna share with our community a little bit about where where you started jewelry, why you picked the craft, and um, what led you to really doing this this really kind of futuristic. I love your work. It's the the look of it, the quality, I can see your commitment to it. And, and just I kind of want to hear where you started with with all of this. Was there a, a certain mentor or time frame for that? Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. I would not say that I even specifically chose jewelry. I was kind of floating around. Um, I think out of out of high school, I might have like started going down a few different r- routes that I, I don't know if that I would have been happy. Perhaps I would have been, but they were all creative outlets. I might have uh, I looked into doing like CGI animation or doing, you know, this and that. I can't even remember. Uh, film was an interest at one point and I just didn't feel like I was ready to commit, you know. So I took a took a year off and I started traveling and then I just didn't stop traveling. And somewhere along the line, I learned to make like a wire wrap pendant and continue from there. I went really far with that. And that, that's led me to where I am today, you know. So it was a very gradual process. And I would say I started with actually um, fabrication and working with torches and all those things uh, later in the, you know, it's probably been over 10 years by now, but I didn't start out that way. I started out very low key with pliers and such. Yeah. Things you could do on the road, I would guess, right? Wire wrapping. And I would say it chose me as kind of the long and the short of it. I didn't really have much of a say. I'm not even much <laughs> of a jewelry wearer myself. Yeah, I get that. I, I get that it chose you. I think that 
you know, if we're, we kind of stay open-minded and, and just listen and follow the, the signs that are coming at us, we typically find out where we're supposed to be, you know, and it changes. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah, I, I kind of assumed your work started with wire wrapping. It's a gateway, you know, gateway tool for sure. And, um, uh, the style that I'm seeing you create and, but now you're doing really fine jewelry, like custom wedding rings and engagement jewelry. Do you, are you loving that part of this and in working in precious metals? I, I really, I like the creative challenge. I like to design in a lot of different styles. So like some of the styles you see are where, where I have been led with the clients, like on the journey of like what they are looking for. My personal tastes are really minimal. Um, leading, starting with the gemstones, but I tend to navigate towards really classic, simple things for anything that I'm going to wear. Um, but I'll take the input from the clients and I will try to interpret that in a way and they'll combine classical elements with, um, I'll take like, basically I try to do a really crazy piece of jewelry. That's why they're coming to me. But then I really try to incorporate classic elements into it to maintain a timeless look and feel. You know, I try to make sure the rings are wearable. They're not high prong settings, things like that. Um, Cause I want my jewelry to stand the test of time uh, aesthetically, uh, design-wise. And, you know, the, the best part about it for me, I think I got a little distracted with that answer, is the, um, connecting with the people that I'm making the rings for. It's so much fun to be involved in their stories. And I can't even tell you how many times, like, I've, um, you know, I've had clients make me cry because they're just so sweet and so considerate. Mm, that's awesome. So you're really liking that one-on-one, the custom... Uh, yeah, it, it's also, um, it's a lot at the same time. I I have to find the right balance of what I can offer people that I work with. Um, some people want a lot of your time and want to be talking on the phone on a, an unreasonable amount of time, <laughs> you know, so I have uh, developed a guideline in a way that I like to work. And if people want to work with me, they can. If they don't, that's fine. Boundaries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I define my boundaries just up front and I find out what they want and if I can meet their um, expectations. And if I can't meet their expectations, I'll say that I'm not the jeweler for them. Mm-hmm. And maybe refer them to somebody else or just, yeah, yeah. no is a perfectly fine answer. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the beauty of running your own business. I, don't, I think you might agree is that you really do get to say yes or no to the work that you want to do now. Um, I don't know if it was always like that for, no, for no, beginners. No, it's not always like that. That's the thing is that's the goal is you want to be able to get to a point where you can choose your projects. Like right now, I don't use a lot of client stones, a lot of reasons for that, but you end up in a pickle. And, you know, you're liable for their gemstones and different things, and I want to have as much creative control as possible. So now I'm finally at a point, um, 16 years maybe into making jewelry where I can, um, I can choose the projects a little bit more where, you know, when you're younger, you are taking a lot more, you're taking what you can, you know, to get by, you know, and to try new creative things. And from that, I have learned that if I don't have a good, um, if I don't have a good rapport with a client or there's certain warning signs, I will step away at the beginning now instead of um, continuing forward. Cause no matter how, no matter how much they're paying me, it's not worth it at the end of the day, the stress. And like, if my goal is to 
create something beautiful and exceed their expectations. Like if we have this communication issue, it's not going to, it's not going to work out in the end from my experience. Yeah. I think that's really logical. And um, yeah, we, you know, we don't want to take on anything that doesn't feel right or uh, mm-hmm. isn't a good match. And that's, I think that's really shows a lot of integrity to share that with your clients up front. And uh, you know, I always try to do that too. And just say, what's the budget? Does it fit? Does this work for us? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, are we going to work well together? Am I capable of doing what you need? And, you know, yeah, it saves a lot of heartache. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. sure. In the long run. Yeah. So would it, before custom, you were you were making one-off pieces or just kind of like, did you have a I, line I still, of jewelry? I still do a little bit of this. Like if I was to explain my business to someone that hasn't seen what I do, um, I, ha- I have a more of, instead of a jewelry brand, I'm an art jeweler first and foremost. So I am approaching everything in that way. I do a lot of custom one-off pieces. And so it was a lot more pendants and bracelets and different things like that. And it has evolved into bridal lately, but I am still doing those other things and often just for fun, making things that are for sale. So I've started a brand where I'm kind of separating the bridal stuff and the brand's called Precious Ghost Jewelry. So, you know, I can customize all those designs. I can replicate and blah, 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 and customize with different stones. The uh, paradigm jewelry and my more art jewelry stuff is I'm not going to copy someone's wedding ring if I really sit through paradigm jewelry. I'm going to do, I'm going to do a custom order. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but you're going to kind of have that exclusivity. So um, I am balancing on this tightrope of I want to make art for a living, but I also have to make a living. And to be honest, those like big crazy art pieces aren't really the best things to pay the, to pay the bills, you know, yeah. you yeah, can compromise. At the end of the day, maybe you made $10 an hour and you put, I have many pieces that I've put hundreds of hours into. So they're passion projects. Well, and to, and a Sawbell Design Award winner piece was one of those, wouldn't you say? Or was that a more, was that an art project? That was, that was an interesting one. Um, that was yeah, just making, I was like, I'm going to enter Sawbell. And I decided I was going to win also, because that's what you should, <laughs> that's the mindset I think you should go into it with. I was like, I'm not going to enter unless I'm going to win. Um, <laughs> And I, it, that, that one was interesting because I designed in a different way instead of ma- doing a design and then staring at it and changing it 80 times um, and just letting that marinate for months, you know, like you'll be in the shower and you'll be like, oh, I solved my problem, you know. And um, so I got the main stone for that piece. I knew it had to be a stunner that arrived to me 10 days before the deadline. And so I had to just go, 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 go. And the granulation work, if anyone who's familiar with the granulation, is everything is handmade. So I had to make the aloe. I had to roll out the sheet. I have, you know, the granules are pre-made, you know, but I had to just do all the forming on the spot. And I really didn't have any time. I didn't even have any time to do any drawing. I just started making shapes and working with that. And um, that forces you, that's an interesting design exercise. It forces you to make decisions and you just have to roll with it and be confident in the decision that you have made because you can't go back and second guess and change. Right. Right. So you just, you decided you were going to win. I love that. (laughs) Like I'm not even entering this if if I don't win. (laughs) I I had a plan that involved travel as well. And I was like, this is what's going to happen. My mother and father are going to come. 
going to drive out there. I'm going to see New Mexico. Um, I, when I put my mind to things, I can usually make them work out. Yeah, I find that to be true. That's that's awesome, though. It's great, you know, paving the way. It's like, you know, really without envisioning, I think, what you want and saying it out loud and just moving toward in that direction. And, you know, it's hard to make anything happen for yourself. Yeah, set high goals. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of times you reach them. Absolutely. I love that. Um, so, so what was the, you did wire wrapping and then you moved into the finer metals and this 18 karat granulation. Are you doing engraving now too, Sarah? I've been looking yeah, at I work. do. I do hand engraving. Um, I do hand engraving. I do lapidary work. I'm starting to do more carving and stonework. I've taught myself to facet during the pandemic and um, yeah, hand engraving, granulation. I've been doing faceting. Yeah. Are you the one touching the piece from start to finish or some of the pieces, yeah. Some of the pieces mm-hmm. I will, you know, even recently I have just made these like knobs for my van where I found the rocks in the river. I brought them home. I cut them, polished them, and have made cabinet knobs with them. I like to have, uh, like, that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to offer jewelry that people literally can't get anywhere else. And the way to really open that door is having more access to the lapidary work and the stones and creating a gemstone that didn't exist before and that nobody can buy and there's only one. So that's a way, that's something that I can offer to my clients to make what they are wearing unique. So Sarah, just talk to us a little bit about making a piece of jewelry. You know, we talked earlier, you mentioned the love hate relationship with some of the processes. I think it's so real and so true. Uh, One of the questionnaires that went out there was like, do you love, what do you hate about jewelry making? And it was polishing polishing everybody answered the same thing so talk to me about about how it feels like from start to finish well I started saying to you you know in a way I dislike almost every part of the process of making things sometimes you know the engraving it's a pain in the ass it's high stress you can make a mistake really easily it's it's incredibly frustrating faceting I've just begun to learn to facet recently during the pandemic it's really boring. <laughs> you're sitting there for a really long time and you're just moving a thing back and forth. And so, you know, of course, like one of my favorite parts is the part where I'm finished, but it's not even really that. Like if I was to sit there and try to break it down, it's like, it's all of it is so frustrating sometimes, you know, but at the same time, I absolutely love it. And I get up every day and I want to go to work right away. And that's what I'm thinking about, you know, I love plotting out the pieces. I love all of the steps. Actually doing them can be very frustrating sometimes, but in, in the end, you end up this thing that never existed before and you just put all this energy into creating. So it's like a love-hate thing is kind of what I'm trying to get at. A more articulate person probably could have described that a little bit better. But I've had people ask me what my favorite part of the jewelry process is, and I'm like, being done, God. You know, it's exhausting. <laughs> delivering it to the to the person right yeah (laughs) i just see a piece of jewelry um on instagram and i look at it and it is absolutely wonderful and i go god i'm tired looking at that i know what that took right yeah the (laughs) blood sweat and tears so to speak that goes into it so it it seems like you could you're like most jewelers you probably like the troubleshooting part a little bit though too because it otherwise you wouldn't get up and go into the studio every day you know Yeah. I've always said that jewelry, jewelry making is creative problem solving because you constantly are just addressing issues, you know, at every part of your day. Um, 
and yeah, just trouble solving because there can be five different ways to do the same thing and which one is the best and which application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you have quite a few tools in your toolbox too at this point with the, the granulations looking amazing. You were working with Kent Rabley to, to learn. Yeah, I learned with Kent Rabley. Yeah. Who are, tell, tell us a little bit about your, like the biggest mentors in the industry or the biggest in life even. Uh, doesn't even have to be industry specific. Ooh, um, you know, the jewelry industry, there's been some really wonderful, Kent, Kent is in particular is really wonderful and he helped me a lot. All of the people that I have worked with and have um, spent their time teaching me have been really wonderful. Um, Dalen Hargrave um, invited a group of us out to his property in uh, Texas and we all learned to facet. It was actually years ago that I went and did that with a group of um, seven to nine of my friends, my peers, all of them were male, I was the only female there. And we would just, it was a working competition, we were competing against each other in a sense to learn and we were all just barely even stopping to eat, you know, or having drinks. We're trying to learn as much as we can. And eventually we had to be told to go to sleep. It would be four in the morning and they're like, okay, guys, got to go to bed. Wow. You know, yeah. we were just so excited to be in there. And there was this, I mean, I don't know who we would have been competing against each other. There's no prize. You know, we were just having a lot of fun, mm-hmm. you know, working together. And maybe it's just that creative energy of working with people. It sounds so fun. Yeah. Like a, like a boot camp on faceting and finally getting into somebody's studio that you admire. Um, you want to, every, every waking moment is, you know, devoted to just learning and absorbing the person's knowledge. Sounds like a blast. Sure. Yeah. If I was to say, um, I had a mentor, you know, outside of the jewelry industry. Um, I don't think she was just an inspiring person. Um, it was a girl when I was younger, I would go to the farmer's market and I just liked being around handmade things. And um, this girl was, she had a hemp, uh, hemp clothing company of some kind. And she, you know, basically she just ran a successful business and she was just a really happy person and like people love to be around her. And she did really well, you know, with, with her business. And I, you know, it, it was the only, for me, it was the first time I'd ever seen a woman be successful in business in that way. I didn't really have any other examples in, in a way that like appealed to me. Like she was doing her own thing and she kind of exuded this positivity and independence and it all worked really well. And so she probably doesn't even know it. You know, we still talk from time to time. Um, but um, she, like as a 15 year old, like seeing her success was really inspiring for me. Have any? I grew up in a very conservative area, and I didn't really have any like positive role models like that. Yeah, that's pretty. It's impressive to see. I think anybody standing out on their own, independent like that, and um, at such an influential age that I can see where that would make a big effect for you. Yeah, she was doing it in her way, which was what was appealing. It's not just seeing a woman run a business; it was seeing a woman run her business on her own terms, and um being successful. And I think the success was how happy she was, (laughs) you know, like every time you saw her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you, so that says a lot to me about how you measure success for yourself too, is it, it's about joy. It's not about, you know, money or, yeah. You want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, if I wanted to be more successful, quote unquote, I could go live in a city and I could go have a brand in a store and 
more employees and I could do that kind of thing and I don't want to. You know, for me, being happy is I have never had to live in a city except for when I studied um, for when I studied at Revere Academy years ago. That was the only time I stayed for a few months. But I have pretty much always lived in small towns, you know, small like little farming communities and stuff like that. And I like that's how what I like. I like to wake up with trees. I like silence. And that is um, success to me, like having the kind of life that I want. So I could have more work and I could have more money, but it's not going to make you happy. Yeah. Yeah. And you're getting by, you're making it work, you know, with what, yeah, making with it work. what you're done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I know you too. I mean, when I met you years ago, that, that travel is a really important part of your life. And, you know, you, you get all those things, you, you kind of get glued to a place and I can see where you would like to keep yourself a little bit more free to jump on the motorcycle, jump in your van and, and take off. How, how often do you get to travel? I know right now is kind of weird, but. Um, it has become more difficult and, you know, over the last few years, I'm not uh, necessarily as, as wild as, as I once was, but that's done. That's untrue. (laughs) Equally as wild, but maybe just not, um, saying yes to everything. A lot of the times if there was a jewelry class or, um, some kind of opportunity, maybe to go mining gems or something like that, I would just be like, okay, yes, I was a yes person. And then when I'm on that trip, I'm like, oh, should we stop here as more yeses, you know, as often as possible, which is really great, but it's also really exhausting. Um, travel's just been, it's been super important for me to just, you know, connect and meet lots of uh, new, interesting, amazing people along the way. And that's kind of like my thing that I like to do. Um, I like to be in places where there is nobody and I don't have phone service and go hike up a mountain. It's a good way to disconnect and find balance for me. Yeah, for sure. Get in some nature and tune out, right? Unplug for a little bit. Talk to me about mining. So you've actually been out mining and, uh, and digging for rocks in the earth and. Yeah, there's a little bit of a, you know, distinction. Like there's like the full scale mining and <laughs> all of that. I've, you know, more, let's say rock hounding. I feel like I might be insulting somebody who's actually doing, doing the work. I, I, I just, like I said, I want to find as many ways as I can to get more involved in the piece of jewelry that I'm making, like through faceting and whatever. So the next step is to actually find the gemstone on its own. So, um, you know, over the years I've rock hounded like Herkimer diamonds and amethysts in Canada and, uh, we did a, a little ladies trip, me and a couple other jewelers. We did a little turquoise mining, you know, trip and um, in the Royston area of Nevada. And, um, you know, in a recent uh, road trip, I was collecting agates and petrified wood and different things I found in the river while we were fishing. And, um, and, and elk horns, right? Or was it elk that you were bringing back from Albuquerque? <laughs> Um, elk horn. Oh no, that, that was um, my my friend had given me some elk meat. <laughs> oh, elk meat. <laughs> I was like, "What are you packing in your backpack, girl?" All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's just like another way to t- spend time outside for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, to be clear to anyone who hasn't seen my work, it's not really what I use <laughs> if I work. There's something about that, though. Yeah, I think um, if you guys haven't seen Sarah's work, it's time to definitely pull up her website and check it out. And um, it's extremely inspiring. It's very unique. I love, I love your aesthetic and just how you're approaching each piece. It's very wide, you know, you can tell, like you described earlier, that you're, you're just making decisions as you go. But there is also, you know, kind of a plan in, in place as well. So 
I don't know. I love that. I love love where your your work is headed. And uh, Sarah Williamson, if we if we Google you, we'll find you. Yeah, uh, parad- um, at Paradigm Jewelry at Instagram is probably the best place to see my work. Websites, I've never really been able to keep them updated, but we're working on like over, you know, overhauling everything. Nice. Welcome to the club. Yeah. So is Instagram going to be the main way that that you find your uh, your clients? I'm curious about you know, how, how are you maintaining client base? Where are they finding you? Um, yeah. Pricing. So I have a few questions for you about that. Yeah. Um, so I'm in this unique position where, um, so I have lived in small towns my entire life and I've had to find ways to make that work. And so it began with literally with MySpace and things like that. Like, there's this little community of jewelers and I was a part of this like special, like kind of melting pot thing that was happening. And so I have like a a following of people, really wonderful, supportive clientele. And a lot of them have just been following me and have never necessarily purchased anything. And then 15 years down the road, it's time for an engagement ring. And they're like, I'm finally reaching out to you. So I have this community of people that have, been with me throughout the years which is a really wonderful and um so it, it's always been online and I'm always posting lots of pictures of the process I have a lot of jewelers that follow me um so it's really just constantly been on social media and through the uh people that have followed me for my artwork for those years yeah well I call that planting seeds right you know you never know when they're going to sprout and it's so important to have that kind of following and community. So then you just ping them and stay in their face and show new work. Is that, is that how you, <laughs> I'm just making things. And I think like, you know, especially with engagement rings, people want something that they can't find anywhere else. They want something special and they want something very, you know, unique. Cause they're like this person I am absolutely in love with and want to spend the rest of my life with. There is no ring unique enough for them. You know, like you have to like, I think it's one of the most challenging jobs and maybe for some people it, it's not um, it's not that intensive a thing, but like you are taking the love between two people and putting it in this like tiny, like one inch square, this like tiny little object. And like, how do you do go about doing that? It's a, it's a, it's a lot of pressure and it's a good challenge. And I guess I like challenges. Rings are challenging because it's got a function. It's got a, it's, you're wearing it every day. Uh, limited space. Yep. Limited. Um, you know, being, some of my rings are very wild, but um, I do like to try to keep it with that classic element. Like I said, cause I don't want you to be going and redesigning your ring in 20 years. Right. Yeah. They need to have longevity and, um, you know, speak for the person and represent them well. It is a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's important. Yeah. I would say it's, it's important. So it takes a bit of time and commitment and communication with your client. Talk to me about pricing. Was that ever, I know that's it's like a big struggle for a lot of us as makers is how the heck do we price our work? <laughs> it is very difficult, especially right now where things are being made so cheaply and there's a lot of, uh, um disinformation i guess a lot of folks don't really know a ton about jewelry so there's a lot of people who are kind of taking advantage of that and selling kind of like these cheap things and then people ask you know why is this this much over here and you're asking this much and i'm always just very clear up front i'm not the cheapest i'm not going to try to be 
and um, what you're going to come to me for is my work. And well, the framework that I've come to now for, you know, rings is that I have a $5,000 minimum for a custom ring. And that allows me to, number one, spend extra time on it. Um, allows me to use a fairly nice stone. I use a lot of colored sapphires, diamonds as well, um, rose-cut diamonds and all these different things. But it allows me, at that minimum, to use a nice stone. It allows me to have room for accent stones, possibly engraving, or possibly use platinum. If you start wanting all of those things, the price is obviously going to go up. But it allows me to use quality stones, and it allows me to have some fun creatively. And that's those are the kinds of projects that I want to take on. And then I'm also offering designs through Precious Ghost where you, you can customize, you can choose a design that I've already done. I can alter it a little bit and I can add a different, you know, add different stones. And I have a lot of sapphires in stock right now. So those can be anywhere between 1,000 to 3,500. So that just makes it more accessible. You can get a really cool, unique ring that I've designed, but it doesn't have this like really high starting point because it's not really feasible for a lot of people. Yeah, the one of a kind stamp, you know. Um. I don't want to, I don't want to ever feel like, exclu like too exclusive. You know, I don't want, like, I want to be able to be as accessible as possible. Sustainable materials and jewelry is, is an important part of your work. Talk to me about the importance in your eyes and, and understanding materials and resources and, and how they're moving and the lack thereof, you know, potential lack thereof eventually. I find the jewelry industry can be a pretty difficult and it's changed a lot in the last bunch of years. You know, like I've been going to the gem shows every year for 15, 16 years. This will be the first year I don't go and asking for a fair source, fair, fairly sourced gemstone was not a thing that you could do. And nobody seemed to care. And I was watching all these people. I'm like, they're just living in this like fallacy, this like this world that's like, do they not care where these things come from? And everybody's, wearing their you know their fancy suits and doing the whole thing and it just for me that it's just not my personality it didn't I didn't really um I didn't understand how people could be so disconnected because in my personal life I'm trying to be conscious of the things I consume like do I need this do I or do I want it like all the you know I'm trying to have as minimal of an impact which I say that but I look at the the tools and the things in my studio and it's it's difficult um, but with sourcing um, jewelry materials and stones, there's become so much more awareness in the last bunch of years to these topics, you know, like, and you actually are beginning to have a lot more direct contact with um, where your stones are coming from. It's like the veil is lifting a little bit and there's a little bit more transparency here and a little bit more transparency there. Um, so, you know, it just, it depends on the gemstone. It depends on so many different things, you know, using recycled metals and such, they're all great, but um, really just trying to encourage more transparency in the, the process, um, you know, the mining of the gemstones, the cutting of the gemstones, you know, so there's really wonderful uh, programs like the Gem Legacy and the things that they're doing. I'm not super familiar with their program. But, you know, like if a gemstone is, say, mined in Tanzania, I think it makes sense that the opportunities are given to people in Tanzania to cut their own stones and provide more jobs and more money into the local economy versus sending things overseas, you know. And so having like that more transparency will increase um, fair and equitable pay and all these different things. It's kind yes. of what I was trying to get at with the lifting of that veil. So it, it's 
You know, when I tell people when it comes to gemstones and things, things are cheap for a reason, you know, so consider that when you're looking into making your purchases. So for me, if I can, it's more like I want to spend more money on a quality product where I know people have been treated fairly the entire way through the supply chain. I like that. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's super important. Um, we were talking too just about kind of advocating for other programs in the industry, and there's a lot of new things popping up right now with the the changes in the world and and everything that's going on. Which is a lot of it to me is actually really exciting. Um, I know we're we're going through a period of change. There's a lot of loss happening. There's a lot of shifting, but what I'm seeing is actually people are you know, beefing up their online sales, they're finding ways to communicate and to re- to reach out to each other and to collaborate differently. So Sarah, tell me a little bit. Um, I know that you have a, a relationship. You're not involved in the program itself, but uh, have been, you know, making sure that people are aware about uh, what Karen Smith is doing with We Wield the Hammer. Um, can you just tell me quickly about that program and what your thoughts are around that and maybe yeah. how we could help? Karen, um, I think Karen has developed, she's, this program has been something that she's been working on and I feel like it's a seed that has been planted, you know, for a while. And Karen is trying to increase access and opportunity for women of African descent to enter the jewelry industry um, in in any way, whether it be through um, uh, on a, you know, on a recreational level or possibly on an employment level. She's trying to just like open the door to the the access to increase representation in the jewelry industry. There's a lot of challenges that um, these women face. So um, just removing the barriers of like the cost, for example, of the classes, like jewelry is an expensive profession. We all know this, like we've all just dumped money into the tools and so there's the tools and then there's the time and you know the opportunity to access the education obviously so she's started this program in oakland california it's on hiatus right now um but it has a lot of potential to be a really amazing thing to mentor the next generation of young black jewelers so um if we want to see change locally, like local is the jewelry industry for me. And also technically Oakland's kind of local. It's not that far away. I'm a few hours from Oakland. Um, but Karen, uh, what we're doing now, she needs um, a space for the program to operate. And um, so we're just trying to raise money for her. So um, I've connected her with the people that I knew at Rio Grande because I knew Rio Grande is a really wonderful um, company and they are advocates and they're trying to do their best to be their best. And um, so Rio has now been working with We Will the Hammer and um, we're, just, we're just, you know, like I said, I'm not involved in the program. I'm just trying to help raise money for the program. I have asked some of my stone cutter friends to cut a stone and then I have paired those stone cutters with jewelers so we have um stone cutters like dalen hargrave Derek katzenbach um we have anna gilbert as well there's, there's six uh stone cutters and six jewelers so the stone cutters have all now at this point cut their stone and the jewelers are going to make a piece of jewelry with that and we're going to auction them off very so, cool yeah and um 
we're going to do a more of like a raffle style fundraising situation. So I think there's a lot of potential, you know, to raise like a considerable amount of money. I'm hoping for the program and, um, yeah, that's going to actually be launching soon. I have three of the finished pieces of jewelry right now in house. Very excited. I'm going to photograph them all. And uh, we're waiting on myself to finish and my friend Everett Wythorn and Karen herself, who runs the program, is also making a piece of jewelry with a turquoise that I cut for her. So um, it's like it's a great way to get us like all like being creative and using our creativity to raise some money for the program. Very cool. Yeah, I hope that she finds a lot of success with that. And sounds like she's got a great support system already, you know, in the works and um, yeah, I'm excited that you guys are, are advocating for that and making sure that, that again, that there's awareness about it. And um, we'll be sure and, and put some links so that people, folks know how to find how they can support that too. Uh, as Tim McCright said, and uh, Matthew Chimene, it's like, let us give for you by, you know, they would go over and hand out tools. And so it's kind of a way that you can give back through others who are, are so deeply involved or, you know, working towards something. And so I think it's definitely a time to be collaborating as much as we can and supporting each other, especially with schools and education. I mean, <clears throat> we're talking about the next generation of makers here. And, you know, a lot of the schools are suffering. A lot of the programming needs needs support right now. So I, I find that very important. Um, so let, let's get back to Sarah. Thanks for sharing about that. Um, I have a quick question for you about apprenticeships and like mentoring. Have you have you ever taken on a mentor or, or been approached to? Um, to to mentor someone else? Well, I asked you to teach a few years. <laughs> I <laughs> think I, I probably asked you like three or four times and you were like, no, not yet. <laughs> but, to be uh, honest, I feel like I'm a student still and I would not even know what I would teach. I, I was like, would it be this? Would it be that? I'm not sure. Um, would it be a free form style class? I'm open. To, I'm open to it in the future. I I love the opportunity. Um, I just recently met a woman here in Nevada City who runs a jewelry program at one of the cooperative kind of art collective places, and um, she she's really wonderful. She's asked me to teach in the past as well, and um, you know, I'm hoping to do something locally, but I I just don't know what it would be. Yeah, not yet. Yeah, yeah. I've got that stu- student mindset. You know, like like be, teaching feels like I'd be exposing to people to all my bad habits. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, which is part of it too, is like seeing the errors that, you know, leveling the playing field and seeing that, Oh, even the master jewelers are the ones who've been at it for over a decade or more, you know, they still make mistakes and it's about kind of like being okay with that process and the skinny spots as I call them. Yeah. Um, it's all yeah, it's, it's, problem solving. <laughs> Yeah, but you do have employees, right? How many employees are you? I have an employee right now, um, and she's really wonderful. I think that's like the biggest challenge for me has been to find someone and to know how to use them in the most like effective way. Like, I probably could admit to having a control problem with like I need to really have the ability. Like, I need I need to know that the outcome is going to be like top notch. Is going to like meet my quality standards and um you spend a lot of time training people sometimes and then they it doesn't seem to stick or it it just depends you have to find the right fit you know yeah it's got to be the right fit Mm -hmm. and the person I have right now is really wonderful she's been a great friend for years and 
couldn't couldn't even imagine having an argument with her. We just get along super well because I spent most of my waking hours working, quote unquote working. And so the person that I'm going to be around with, I want to enjoy that, like that time spent with them. So we, we get along super great. And her studio is, I can open my door right now. I'm 10 feet from my door and then I'm four feet from her door. So she is, and I know she's there right now. (laughs) (laughs) She's listening. She's listening. (laughs) Say nice things. So um, it's been really great to have, to have her around. Um, Finding the right person is a a big challenge. So um, probably like anything in life, like things that work easily can often be the best. Yeah, it should flow. It should make yeah, sense. Yeah, it should flow. But, I, you know, it's taken me a lot of years to get to this point, to have enough work. You know, I had an employee move across the country to work for me, and that didn't – it was okay, but I found I was just trying to make work, and I was spending all my time on the computer and, like, you know, hustling and doing these things. And it um, – you know, the the skill level wasn't really there for me, so – yeah, managing, you know, managing people takes a lot of time as well and training. Trying to be an artist, not a manager. <laughs> yeah. What would you say to somebody out there who is like, man, I would really like to work with her or learn from her um, or, you know, be interviewed to work for her? I um, I have a lot to say on the topic, actually, because I get asked very, very frequently. Um, I get asked in a way where, first of all, people don't send me a resume. The one, the first person I ever hired, the girl I was just talking about, she sent me a resume. So approach me in a professional manner, um, shows me that you respect me. And instead of approaching me, and oftentimes what people do is, how can I be you? How can I learn that? How can I, you know, all these things revolving around themselves. Like, what can I take from you is kind of how I feel. I'm constantly being approached. And... Tell me what you can do for me when you approach me to ask for work or ask for an apprenticeship, you know, because I feel like a lot of people want to just come here, learn what they can and then go and do their own thing. And that's not what I need. It's not um, that's not a good. um, and, And, you know, I think that probably applies just in general in life. It's you need you need to um, take a step back and be of service to others in order to learn. If you want the benefits, you can't just say, can I have what you have? You know, you have to put in the work and learn and have patience. Things are not like in this social media age, things are just constantly handed to us. You put a dog, you know, you put your card in and you don't, you don't put your card in anything, but (laughs) be careful what you put your card in. (laughs) You, um, you don't get instantaneous results. Like jewelry is an old school craft and there is no substitute for time invested. So invest your time, invest in yourself. You don't need to invest in tools as much as you need to just invest time working, designing, drawing, and making mistakes. And not getting upset about your mistakes because the only thing that is guaranteed is you're going to make, can I swear? Oh yeah. You're going to make some fucking mistakes. And you're going to keep making them. And then you're going to learn to use those mistakes to come up with those creative uh, solutions to those mistakes. Right. Yeah. And without the mistakes, there's no learning, you know. 
So if it, if it all just went, really. yeah, it'd be boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you didn't like leave a $10,000 diamond on the side of the street in town, it'd be pretty boring. <laughs> Ooh, oh man. No, that's a, that's a big mistake. We got to, we got to talk a little bit about some of your biggest hurdles here then. And it's a great place to shift into that, Sarah. And um, like you said, we all, we all mess up. We all make mistakes. Like tell me about some that stood out for you or that, that really created the big learning for you in your, your path. Well, one of the more prominent mistakes, it's pr- I'm probably a little bit distant from it now that it's not, I don't get the physical reaction that I used to get, um, was I was making an engagement ring for a client and the client gave me a really high budget and a lot of that budget was for time. So the center stone was uh, Moonsteiner, if you guys are familiar with Bert Moonsteiner, uh, aquamarine cut. So really wonderful fantasy cut aquamarine and it was in platinum and it was in this style. I don't do a lot of it because I can't really draw it. I have to just make it. I call it like future deco. So it's kind of just kind of futuristic and kind of has like kind of have to see it to understand. But um, making this engagement ring, I'm spending so much time on every little detail of this ring and I go to set the stone it's all wax carved and these stones these fantasy cuts it's a it's an abstract shape and there is some um, I think it's called concave cutting underneath Um, and I go to set the stone and I think the last little hammer tap shattered the stone underneath and just about had a heart attack oh man Um, there's a thing that happens to me like if I, if I make a mis- if I make a mistake and it's likely fixable, I get pissed and swear maybe and like might have like a, you know, might throw some pliers or something like that. Like I'll have a reaction like that. But when I make a big mistake, I go silent. <laughs> I go silent and I go, I went and laid on the couch and went through all of the emotions and absolute panic attack, but just silent because at that point, all of the your your little hissy fit you're throwing with your pliers isn't gonna do you any good. You're instant. I'm instantly going into. I'm maybe like I'm in a shock state, and then I go into like, okay, let's solve this problem right now. And so I go into a problem solving mode. And I mean, life just happens this way sometimes. But I happen to be going to. It was like a weekend where we studied with Dale and Hargrave learning to facet. So I happen to be going to Texas to do this. And um, I brought this stone with me. The stone, the way it broke, it was underneath. And it was, let's say I lost about uh, a tenth or twelfth of the stone just underneath. It didn't touch the face of the stone, blah, blah, blah. Um, At the end of the course, Dalen was able to sit down with me. And my client was one of those high-anxiety clients. So he, there was a lot of, like, he he proposed with the stone. You know, so it was wow. like this. It was all about the stone. So then I break the stone that he proposes with. Oh my gosh! So Dalen and I sit down and we look at the stone, and he's like, "Here's my idea." And he ends up recutting the stone. And now there is there is actually a small piece missing in the piece that it, like in the ring that I made. So now I have taken that stone. I you know it's recut and it actually looks a little cooler, but it's a little bit smaller. And then I add another addition to the ring, I basically used my problem solving skills and ended up like adding a couple little pieces in a stone. And the client was like, when I finished, he was like, I like it more. 
So this wow. mistake that was like potentially like really big financial mistake, really big, like in a lot of ways for myself and my client and like breaking, like feeling like I broke the trust with the client. I mean, it's an aquamarine, <laughs> it happens, but um, you know, he ended the goal is that they're happy. And he ended up being like, I like this more. I can't believe what you did. And when I, I got to actually hand deliver that ring, I don't get to do that often but I happened to be in Colorado. So I hand delivered the ring and he just sat there looking at it for 10, 10, 10, 15 minutes straight. And I'm not even exaggerating. Um, and he was absolutely thrilled with the outcome, but that was like probably one of the best examples I have of a mistake that we took and we came up with a problem like a solutions and solved the problem and made something better. Yeah. Yeah, well, I call those happy accidents, you know. It's like, well, what do we do now? And how do we ad- adjust our, our goal here? Um, and it, when it works out, that's that's lovely. But there's that moment where it's like, oh, my gosh. You know, you could swallow mm-hmm. your your heart. And it's like, oh, you know, what did I, what's happened? And mm-hmm. you feel like the end of the world, you know. <clears throat> we, like we say, the skinny spots, right? And push past those. And, well, there um, isn't I, any sense in sitting there and dwelling on it and being angry you just got to start working to, towards solving the problem towards a solution. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a great approach in life and in, in making anything, I think any craft. And so your, your, uh, your partner, your boyfriend is a ceramicist. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So y'all are both cre- creating during the day. Is this, tell us about a typical day for you guys. Are you in the studio most of the time or? Um, Right now he doesn't, he's just moved to the area. So he doesn't, he has a studio, but it's not set up very comfortably. So we're going to get into that routine a little bit more, but yeah, for him, typically he is working usually kind of nine to five ish in his studio and being creative. And he does a really cool style of like Japanese ceramics as like wood fired style ceramics. And it's re- yeah, really wonderful work and just wonderful to be with someone who understands the creative processes and himself kind of, you know, doing something similar. And I also just absolutely love ceramics and his, his uh, work is really wonderful as well. It's nice to have a, a partner that understands your process and, and therefore prob- probably supports, you know, the, the time that it takes to, to create something and the, the devotion to your own company and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's um, in the amount of time that I give my work, it's a, it's a requisite because, you know, especially as a woman, it's intimidating mm-hmm. when uh, for a lot of men, when uh, a woman who is very successful at their, at their craft. Have you faced a lot of challenges as, as being like a female jeweler in the industry? I feel like you and I, well, I'm 40. I don't know how old you are, Sarah, but um, when I came in, it, it felt like it had already started to kind of shift. We don't have to get too deep into that, but but I, I've never honestly like seen resistance to me being in the industry as a female. And <clears throat> it's kind of a hard question to answer when I get asked that question. Like, what's it like to be a female? It's difficult because you don't you don't know anything else, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's like. Um, here like with doctors like a lot of people feel more comfortable with a male doctor even though female doctors are on average spending more time with their patients and this is on the other thing um i feel there's definitely a lot of different ways in which i've felt held back um dealing with clients sometimes i feel like especially in person there have been situations where i know i have to avoid um being one-on-one with a man in private you know, there's just been different situations where I'm like, I'm not, I know that that's how that's going to go. 
and, and not saying anything inappropriate would happen. I'm just saying like being in a private one-on-one situation that would make me feel uncomfortable. Um, and then there's just, there's been other opportunities and situations. I know that if I was a man, I may have gotten or, you know, different things like that, but it really isn't going to serve me in any way to kind of dwell on it. I'm just going to kind of keep doing my thing. Um, you know, with the art jewelry, I felt like, you know, men want to buy from men. A lot of my clients are male. Um, I find that the men want to buy from men because it's like on, they want to buy the brand, you know, if they're buying like a flashy piece of jewelry, but they trust me to make engagement rings because it's a female thing. It definitely has affected me and I'm sure it has held me back to some extent, but, um, it really is hard to say without having the experience of... Well, you just keep moving forward no matter what, you know. Um, I think that's the, the best that we can all do. Um, this has been awesome to sit with you, Sarah, and and get to know you better. And I know we got to spend a little time back uh, in Austin when you were here years ago. Uh, it's really... it. Oh, man, it was so fun. And um, Graham uh, came down with you, right? Graham Bant Laws. This is... Yeah, who's another amazing, fascinating jeweler. And... Um, yeah, I guess, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the community before we uh, we sign off today? And again, thank you so much for taking time away from your bench and the cutting. Uh, I, you know, I'd really, um, I hope everybody's doing okay, considering what's been going on lately. Um, should I mention when we're recording? <laughs> um, we're recording around the beginning of December. So, you know, as of tonight, I'm in California, the state's going in a lockdown. Um and I know it's been hard for a lot of people. And I know a lot of people have been able to adapt their business um, to meet the pandemic. But I, I hope you guys are all doing well. And I hope that um, if you're a beginner jeweler, that you haven't given up. Um, that you just put things off to the side maybe for a minute and do what you can do. And I just hope you guys are all doing well. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of For the Love of Jewelers. Stay tuned for the next episode by subscribing through Spotify, iTunes, or by searching podcast at riograndecom I encourage you to rate us, write a review, and share with friends and colleagues. I hope you're all finding ways to stay inspired. I'm your host, Courtney Gray. Until we get to connect again, onward and upward.